Is it your position as you sit here that Susan never told those people that or that she told those people that and they're lying about it? I would agree that if I knew Kathy was in a rocket ship, I would not have to call her family. You never told that story to Detective Strzok, to Andrew Jarecki, to any member of the media, to myself and detectives during our interview. Is that correct? Nobody ever asked me about my scribbly note to myself. And you just realized right now that you made a boo-boo and tried to cover it up by now bringing up a second boat that doesn't exist? Isn't that what just happened? Everything you just said is untrue. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Monday, August 24th, Robert Durst took the stand for the fourth day of John Lewin's cross-examination, delivering some truly jaw-dropping testimony. In this episode, we're going to examine all of it, the dramatic, the potentially damning, and the outright bizarre. We'll take a look at Bob's explanation for the dig note, or digin note, as he now calls it, his perspective on Emily Altman's testimony, and his account of narrowly missing the killer at Susan Berman's home. And of course, we'll identify the cunning traps that John Lewin has set for Durst, and the traps that Robert Durst has accidentally set for himself. That's coming up after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Early in the day, Robert Durst employed a now familiar tactic. He responded to one of Lewin's questions, not with a direct answer, but with a piece of information that could potentially elicit sympathy from the jury. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you called the precinct to report Kathy missing before you called her family members to find out if they had heard from her? I called the precinct to find out how to report a missing person. But Mr. Durst, wouldn't the first thing you would do before you call the police, wouldn't the first thing you would do is you would call Kathy's family, her mom, her sisters, her brother, and find out, hey, listen, has anybody seen Kathy? Isn't that what a normal person does? Well, I'm not a normal person. I am told that I'm somewhere on the autistic spectrum. I don't know what a normal person does. It seemed to me what I wanted to do was find out how to report a missing person. So was it your intention whenever you could to try to throw out that I've got autism thing whenever you had a chance? Did that just organically come up in your answer? Or was that an intentional move on your part 
to try and make the argument to this jury that somehow you're going to blame a condition that millions of people suffer with to explain your behavior? Is that what you're doing? You asked me what a normal person does. I am told I am autistic and not normal. Please explain to me how autism or Asperger's would in any way influence whether you called the police first or whether you would check with Kathy's family to find out if maybe she's with them. I thought that there was a real good chance that Kathy was causing Kathy not to go to Albert Einstein as part of her scheme to somehow or other redo an exam that she did badly on. And I was concerned that her family would not tell me where she was if they knew. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that if you actually knew where Kathy was, such as, as an example, if she were dead, that you would not need to call her family members to check? Would you agree? I would agree that if I knew Kathy was in a rocket ship, I would not have to call her family. By the way, I just want to be clear. That's not where you think she is. That's not a part of your defense. I just want to be clear that you're not now alleging that Kathy is in a rocket ship, maybe circling the Earth. I don't think Kathy's in a rocket ship. This absurd exchange set the tone for a day of testimony that would be filled with oddities and surprises. When John Lewin moved on to the subject of the dig note, the prosecutor was in for one such surprise. Robert Durst had an even more detailed explanation of the note's meaning than he gave on direct examination. All right, Mr. Durst, let's talk about what's been commonly referred to as the dig note. You know what that is, correct? Yeah. Can you put the dig note up, please? Do you recognize this, Mr. Durst? I recognize it. You wrote the items on the left side other than the circle around dig. Is that correct? That's your handwriting. Correct. It says town dump, bridge, dig, boat, other, shovel. John, it's shovel or question mark. Yeah, shovel or question mark. Thank you. And the last line is hard to read. Can you tell us what that says since you wrote it? It says check cars dash truck rent. Check cars slash truck and then rent. Is that what it says? Yes. So, Mr. Durst, would you agree that just looking at it, this looks like a list of how you would get rid of a body? That's what it looks like to you. It does not look like that to me at all. You're aware that this was found in the trash can in your bedroom shortly after Kathy disappeared, correct? I thought it was a trash can in the living room, but it was shortly after Kathy disappeared, and it was one of probably five or six different notes that I wrote to myself about what I wanted to do during the weeks of February 1st to February 15th when I was not going to go to the office. So, Mr. Durst, is it your testimony? I know you're saying 
that it is not a list of how you would get rid of a body. But my question to you is, if somebody were looking at the list and reading it, would you agree that it would be a reasonable inference to believe that given when that list was written and what it says, that it would be reasonable to believe that it was a list involving getting rid of a body? If somebody read that, they would see it says town dump, which was my reference, and I was going to tell the high school kids who took care of the house to take our rotting sailboat to the town dump. Bridge is an abbreviation of Bridgehampton, where Kathy and I intended to rent a house for the month of July of 1982. DIG is for digital. I had brought the MS-DOS Microsoft control book with the computer, which I was planning to work on. Boat is the sailboat that needed to go to the town dump. I don't know what I meant by other. Shovel was the snow shovels, and I had asked the high school kids who were going to get rid of the sailboat at the dump to buy two snow shovels, because ours had been stolen. Check cars dash truck rent was that the kids are supposed to rent a pickup truck to put the boat in. So a high school kid is supposed to rent a vehicle? Where can high school kids rent cars and trucks? Are you aware of such a place? The high school kid was 18. So, Mr. Durston, would you agree that this story you just told, you never told that story to Detective Strzok, to Andrew Jarecki, to any member of the media, to myself and detectives during our interview? Is that correct? Nobody ever asked me about my scribbly note to myself. No one, so it's your testimony that no one ever asked you about the dig note? No one ever asked me about the dig note. Um, let's play RD-494. Town, dump, bridge, dig, boat, other, shovel, or check, car, chuck, rental. So this is my handwriting. Now, I have a feeling there's something out here, but I have no idea what that means, what I was writing. And she found this in the trash around the time when Kathy disappeared? Yeah. So I think and she did was... she figure it all out? Evidently Town, not. dump, bridge. I don't even know where the town dump is up there. They, they collected garbage. We never took anything to a dump. Yeah, I mean, I think her, what she said to the police was, well, this was the list that Bob made after Kathy was dead. These were his options of what to do with the body. The town dump or the bridge or the dig, the boat. We had a sailboat on the little lake. Do you agree, Mr. Durst, that you did not mention anything about any of the details you just testified to, correct? Mr. Durst, you just gave a long dissertation today regarding Barry Weiner or Weiner, 
and what each thing meant, including the dig meant digital. Did you say that during this question with Mr. Jarecki? I don't remember. Well, I just played it for you. Did you hear it? So what you just played is what I said. Mr. Durst, why wouldn't you have mentioned everything you just testified to about this, the high school kid and what all these things meant? How come you didn't say that to Andrew Jarecki? I don't know. Could it be, Mr. Durst, that you literally made this up when you first testified on August 11, 2021, and that it is completely and absolutely a 100% certifiable lie, start to finish? Uh, objection, it's, uh, the objection is sustained, it's uh, argumentative. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that the reason that you did not mention this to Andrew Jarecki is because it's a lie? In eliciting this testimony from Durst, Prosecutor John Lewin set up multiple traps for the defendant, the first of which had to do with Robert's sailboat. The sailboat was being taken uh, to the dump by uh, the Weiner kid, is that correct? Uh, it is Barry Weiner to take the sailboat to the dump. Why was the sailboat being taken to the dump? Because the sailboat was rotting. But isn't that the same sailboat that you ended up selling to Bill Mayer? No, when I, I had bought two sailboats. First one was rotting away and I wanted taken to the dump. The second one was in pretty good shape when I sold the South Salem house. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that there's never been discussion about anything more than one sailboat and you just realized right now that you made a boo-boo and tried to cover it up by now bringing up a second boat that doesn't exist? Isn't that what just happened? Overruled. Everything you just said is untrue. Lewin's second trap involved Barry, the high school student who Durst claims he asked to take his sailboat to the dump. How well did you know Barry Weiner? He was the kid who mowed the lawn. I paid him something like $10 a month to mow the lawn and take care of the planting. How well did you know him? I know that he mowed the lawn. How long did he mow the lawn for you? I think he worked for us for about five years. I want to play for you, Mr. Durst, the first time that you mentioned Barry in direct examination. I called up the high school student who was used to taking care of the outside of our house, mowed the lawn, did the trimmings on the bushes and the trees and take, took care of the plantings and everything. His name was Barry Weiner. I reminded Barry Weiner that he was supposed to rent a pickup truck to take the sailboat. It's called a sailfish. That's the model of it, that had come with the house and was waterlogged and falling apart. 
I asked Barry to rent the truck, get some of his friends, and take the sailfish to the town dump. You said you've known Barry for five years, correct? About, yes. Yeah, you couldn't remember his name, though. You first called him Wiener. And for the last hour, I've been calling him Barry Weiner, and you've been calling him Barry Weiner. You forgot the name you gave him, didn't you? I'm not sure what the question is. You originally called him Barry Weiner, and now today you've been calling him Barry Weiner yourself and answering that his name was Barry Weiner, and this is someone you've known for five years. How can you explain that? Barry Weiner, Barry Weiner. That's not the same to you. So, Mr. Durst, someone said your name was um, Robert Durst, D-U-R-B-S-T. Would that be the same as Robert Durst? Is that, would that be a different name? Well, Durst is with D-U-R-S-T. D-U-R-B-S is a different name. So, Mr. Durst, are you telling me that you think the name Weiner and the name Weiner are the same name? Yes. Mr. Durst, which is it? Was his name Barry Weiner or was it Barry Weiner? You don't seem to be able to make up your mind. I think I probably called him Barry Weiner sometimes and Barry Weiner other times. And mostly I just called him Barry. Was his dad's name, was it Oscar Meyer? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With no clear answer to the Wiener or Weiner question, Lewin pivoted back to Durst's best friend and alleged victim, Susan Berman, and the multiple witness testimony that she provided an alibi for Durst. You've heard testimony, you would agree, from numerous witnesses who have related that Susan Berman, in essence, told them that she helped you cover up Kathy's death by providing you with a false alibi. Is that correct? Correct. Is it your position, as you sit here, that Susan never told those people that, or that she told those people that, and they're lying about it? Susan told people that she had provided an alibi for me, and she told at least one person that the way she had provided the alibi was by calling Albert Einstein Medical Center. So, listen to my question. Maybe you stand it, but I'm not sure. There are a couple of different possibilities, Mr. Durst. Your position could be that, you know what, those witnesses who are saying Susan said that to them are either mistaken or they're lying, or they are neither mistaken or lying. Susan told them that, and she was lying. Which is it? Susan told them that, and she was lying. If that's true, Mr. Durst, would you agree that all of Dr. Loftus's testimony would be completely worthless because in the end, it has nothing to do with memory 
you're not questioning whether the witnesses were told that. You're merely saying Susan lied when she told them. Is that correct? Sustained. Mr. Durst, would you agree then that if that is the case, that you are not saying that these witnesses are either mistaken or lying, you are simply saying that Susan was lying when she told them that. Is that correct? When Susan said that she provided me with an alibi, Susan, excuse me, was lying. What this has to do with the psychology lady, I have no idea. So my question would be, Mr. Durst, do you have an explanation as to why Susan Berman would tell people that you killed Kathy and that you had her basically come up with an alibi for you? Can you explain why she would say that? What would be her reason? Susan liked to make up stories. Mr. Durst, you're her best friend, correct? I never felt well, maybe, or I'll go along with that. I asked you earlier today if, given Susan loyal, Susan's loyalty, if she would have participated in calling Einstein to cover up a killing for you, and your response was, maybe she would have, maybe she wouldn't have. Do you remember that exchange? Correct. So that explains why she would lie to help you. Can you explain why on earth she would tell her friends that you had killed your wife if you didn't do it? She liked to tell big stories. At the end of the day, Durst was forced to reckon with another story told by one of his oldest friends, Emily Altman's testimony that Durst was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder. In relaying his impression of Emily's statements, Durst made it clear just how little he thought of her intelligence. Mr. Durst, would you agree that you are not someone to give lavish friend, uh, gifts to your friends? I would not agree with that. But I think Emily and Stuart Allman testified that I gave them a car. You gave them a car, Mr. Durst, when you were aware that Emily Altman knew that you had been in Los Angeles at the time information that she was hiding and eventually ended up admitting during the pendency of this of this case, correct? No, not correct. Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that in fact, Emily Altman's admission during her testimony that you had told her that you were in Los Angeles at the time of the murder was probably the key piece of evidence in this case that has now put you in the position where you have to admit you wrote the cadaver note. Correct? Sustained. I thought. Sustained. During your. It was sustained, Mr. Durst. You were sitting in the courtroom when Emily Altman testified that you had told her you were in Los Angeles at the time of Susan's murder, correct? I was sitting in the courtroom and I heard Emily Altman spending most of her time, quote unquote, crying her eyes out. I thought you did a pretty good job of making it clear that Emily Altman was a highly unreliable witness. Mr. Durst, Emily Altman said that you were in Los Angeles at the time of the murder, correct? Emily Altman, in response to your question, 
Emily Oh, ma'am, do you know if Robert Durst was in Southern California, Los Angeles, when Susan Berman was murdered? And Emily Altman swallowed the bait hole and announced that Robert Durst was in Southern California in Los Angeles, staying at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. Mr. Durst, up until that moment, for 17 years, you had said repeatedly that you were not in Los Angeles, is that correct? Well past that moment. And you had said this under oath, you'd committed perjury to escape the idea that you were in Los Angeles at the time of Susan's murder, correct? Well, I repeatedly stated, both before Emily Altman made her stupid statement, and after Emily Altman made her stupid statement, that I was in Northern California when Susan Berman was murdered. You're calling it a stupid statement, Mr. Durst, but you've now agreed that stupid statement that you were, in fact, that you told her you were in Los Angeles at the time of Susan's murder is true, correct? But not that I was staying at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. Emily Altman just made that up on the spur of the moment. Right, and between the time that you told Emily that you were in Los Angeles and the time she admitted to it in 2017, you would agree that she possessed a very damning piece of evidence, is that correct? Emily Allman guessed, and she guessed that I was staying at the quote-unquote Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. Mr. Durst, isn't it true? I don't want to talk about the Beverly Hills Hilton. Did oh, you? that's what she said. No wonder you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Mr. Durst, did you tell Emily Altman that you were in Los Angeles at the no, time of Susan's murder? No, I tour? would not tell Emily Altman that. So your testimony is that it turns out you were in Los Angeles at the time of the murder, but you never told Emily Altman that. Is that your testimony? Correct. Mr. Durst, would you agree that the idea, the fact that you gave Stuart and Emily Altman a very expensive Lexus between the time she alleges that you told her this damning information and the time when she revealed it, that that could be taken by someone looking at it as an effort to keep her happy and quiet? No. I think if you were paying attention my telephone calls. Oh, I pay attention to your telephone calls, trust me. So Mr. Lewitt, I've yeah. told you not to comment like that on a witness's testimony. Just ask questions. Understood, Your Honor. You heard me tell Stuart Altman that his wife was acting like a babbling idiot. Mr. Durst, when you've talked about Emily Altman acting like a babbling idiot, or when you've criticized her testimony, you would agree what you have not said is that Emily Altman was lying, correct? If I did not say she was lying, I'll say it now. Emily Altman was lying. I did not stay at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. Mr. Durst, would you agree that the big significance of Emily Altman's testimony 
is not where you said you stayed, but the fact that you were in Los Angeles, in Beverly Hills, at the time that Susan Berman was murdered? That Emily Altman answered your question. Emily Altman, I'll bet you don't even know if Robert Durst was in Southern California in Los Angeles when Susan Berman was murdered. And Emily Altman assured you that she did know that I was in Southern California in Los Angeles staying at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. She kind of got the, the name wrong. There's the Beverly Hills Hotel and there's the Beverly Hilton. They're different places. She managed to lump it all together and call it one hotel. Mr. Durst, didn't she in fact testify that she spoke to you and you told her that that's what happened? Isn't that what happened? No, she did not say Bob told me that he was in Southern California in Beverly Hills, staying at the Beverly Hilton, Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. Emily Altman just stated it as a fact. You, you said she mixed up the Beverly Hills Hotel and the Beverly Hilton Hotel. What did you mean by that? Well, they're two different hotels. There's the Beverly Hills Hotel and there's the Beverly Hilton. So when she said you were staying at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel, can you tell me how that would mean she mixed up anything unless what you're saying is you told her you were staying not at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel, but the Beverly Hills Hotel? I did not tell her that I was in Southern California. I did not tell her I was in Los Angeles. And I did not tell her that I was staying at the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel. Emily Altman managed to babble all of that on her own. At this point, Durst's testimony took an unexpected turn that led to shocking new details about his alleged discovery of Susan's body. But Mr. Durst, you're now saying that in fact you were in Beverly Hills at Susan's house. So how did Emily know that if she was just babbling? I am not saying I was in Beverly I am saying that I arrived at Susan Berman's house on Benedict Canyon before the killer had left and that I promptly myself left. Well, I want to stop you. So now you're saying that the killer was actually in the house when you were there? I believe the killer was either still in the house or in the yard when I arrived. Mr. Durst, haven't you testified that Susan's body was cold? I did not testify that Susan's body was cold. Do you have it, do you have it ready to go or not? I put my hand over her face. I might have left that out to see if she was breathing, to see if I could feel breath, and it felt cold. Well, what do you have to say about that? 
Her breath felt, her face felt cold. Her, she's dead. What do you mean her breath felt cold? Was she breathing on you when you got there? No, she was not breathing. So how can her breath be cold when she's dead? She's a stiff. It was, I put my hand on her face and it was cold. That is, so Mr. Durst, let's go back to what I said a moment ago. You said the killer was in the house. I asked you, well, Mr. Durst, didn't you say that Susan's body was cold? You said, no, I never said that. Now you're saying that Susan's body was cold, correct? I'm not saying her body was cold. So what was cold, Mr. Durst? Let me stop okay. you. Do you, do you agree she can't breathe on you? Would you agree? Her face was cold. Her face was cold? Correct. So you believe that her face would have been a different temperature than the rest of her body? I have no idea. So the part of her body, well, you picked her up by the, by the arms and the hands. Remember you're saying you lifted her six inches off the ground? Correct. She was cold, wasn't she? Her face felt cold. What did her, what did her arms and hands feel like when you picked her up? When I lifted her up by her arms, I did not feel it was cold. But you said her face was cold, correct? Correct. If her face was cold, Mr. Durst, would you agree that even though you're not a forensic pathologist, that would indicate she'd been dead for some period of time? I don't know whether a period of time is five minutes or an hour or two hours. So it's your position that she might have been only dead for five minutes, her face is cold, and that the killer is still in the house. Is that what you're telling this jury? Correct. We can start again tomorrow, Your Honor. We're now joined by reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the case for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks a lot, Carrie. So, Charlie, we started off the day with more stuff about Prudence Farrow and Bob Durst's relationship with her. What did we learn today beyond what we heard last week? Well, we, we got a, a couple of tantalizing items in that we know that Prosecutor John Lewin interviewed Prudence Farrow but we haven't seen that as a piece of evidence. Now, the, the defense has seen the interview, but we got an idea of what might be in there through Lewin's questioning. He asked at one point whether or not Bob had talked to Prudence shortly before or shortly after Kathy disappeared, at which time he said, did you say something to the effect that you wouldn't be seeing me for a while. And that has all kinds of implications about what he means for a while and uh, was he trying to take care of some business in the meantime. But I think we're going to hear more about what Prudence said about her relationship with Bob and with Kathy. I know from Kathy's sister, Mary Hughes, that Kathy was very bothered by Prudence and her calling. You know, she actually called Kathy and asked, well, you know, why don't you give Bob a divorce? And this really bothered her. They were, she and Bob were in the middle of uh, a back and forth over the divorce and what the terms would be. Kathy was not walking away empty-handed, as she told her friends. And so it became a question on whose terms and when, and they would go back and forth on this. That's why they both had lawyers, 
but they hadn't really come to terms. Charlie, what were your impressions of the Dignote or Diginote and the two sailboats and Barry Weiner, Barry Weiner, Oscar Mayer Weiner? <laughs> Once again, I think Lewin is battering Bob and demolishing one of Bob's stories after another. The dig note is one of the iconic pieces of evidence that arises in this case. And it's a list of single words or phrases that comes off a lot like a to-do list. Many people, including the prosecutor, believe that this is a to-do list for getting rid of a body. But Bob said this was things he wanted to get done. It was a a traditional to-do list, so to speak. I I have the dig note here in front of me or a copy of it. So you want to take us through some of them? As for bridge, he said bridge is an an abbreviation for Bridgehampton, where Kathy and I intended to rent a house for the month of July. Then dig, it did not mean digging a hole for a body. It meant uh, digital. It was shorthand. Bob was a man ahead of his time. Uh, He's talking about digital in uh, 1982. That's a great point, Charlie. I mean, Bob has said that he was an early adopter of MS-DOS, but what kind of a list includes a bunch of yard work and, oh, by the way, my cutting-edge computer? Right. And Lewin also asked Bob about this young man, Barry Weiner, who supposedly at 18 years old was meant to rent a truck and take his boat away. Why don't you talk a little bit about that back and forth? Yeah, I I, I think the prosecutor was having a hard time swallowing this uh, uh, explanation And so there was a whole play on, was it Barry Weiner or Weiner? And they were going back and forth on how to pronounce the name. And Bob says, well, basically, how the hell should I know how to pronounce the name? Uh, He was just this kid uh, that I saw occasionally and who cut the grass. I don't know what his name is. I called him Barry most of the time. The whole idea here was, did Barry even exist? Brittany, what did you make of all that banter about Barry Weiner? You know, I hate to play devil's advocate, but when Lewin first figured out that Barry Weiner was the Barry Weiner that Bob had mentioned on direct, it didn't initially strike me as an impossibility that they were the same person. Because it's one of those names like Oscar Hammerstein that could be pronounced either way, Hammerstein, Hammerstein. The thing that tipped me off that the whole thing was a fabrication was the fact that Bob didn't volunteer that information. Like, hey, this is the same high school student I mentioned before. When he's clearly had no problem including extra information in his answers. And then returning to the dig note or diginote, the word boat referred to the boat that he wanted Oscar Meyer's teenage son to take to the town dump. Charlie, can you talk about this boat? He wanted to get rid of a sailboat that he had. And gradually one sailboat became two sailboats, one of which was balsa wood and was uh, falling apart. And he said this was a sailfish. Now, I I used to have a sunfish. And both the sunfish and the sailfish, they're about 13, almost 14 feet long. And they are absolutely impossible to sink. But they are not balsa wood. But Bob said he, he hired this high school kid and asked him to go out and rent a truck to bring it to the town dump. Now, in those days, as the prosecutor brought out, you, you know, a 18-year-old couldn't rent a car. 
So once again, Bob is supplying answers. They're just not altogether holding water. Yeah, the moment where he claimed that there were two boats was one of my favorite moments because we heard from Bill Mayer that he bought Bob's boat and Lewin caught him in this inconsistency. But that's no problem because now there are just two boats. Yeah, that was incredible. And then the shovel or shovels were apparently stolen out of their garage, so he had to replace them. Right. Snow shovels. And so he asked them to go to the store to pick up a couple new shovels. Yeah, it totally checks out. Oh, and unlike the other items on the list, this one was written as, quote, shovel or question mark, which is definitely how you'd identify a household item that you need to replace and not a pretty good option for burying a body. I mean, he also said that he wrote the list a couple days before Kathy disappeared. I think he said he wrote it on January 29th, and he can remember what day he wrote the note on. But he can't remember other important details about his wife's disappearance. It's intensely dramatic and also at the same time just remarkably absurd. Absolutely. Probably one of the big moments of the day, Charlie, was when Lewin was questioning Bob on all the witnesses to whom Susan told that she provided Durst with an alibi or some version of that. And Bob's response to that really was one of the stunning moments of the trial. Why don't you talk about what it was like hearing all of that in the courtroom? Absolutely. He starts talking about the witnesses and about Susan. And he was very dismissive of the woman who he once described as his best friend. You know, he said, well, I didn't really believe half of what she told me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the witnesses. What's wrong is with what Susan said, what Susan told them. And this was a really stunning moment. All of a sudden, everybody's sitting up straight. Moving on to Susan, towards the end of the day, John Lewin came around to discussing testimony regarding Robert Durst's trip to Los Angeles in December of 2000. And he started by talking about Durst's alleged conversation with Emily Altman and the fact that Emily Altman revealed in court for the first time the fact that Robert Durst had been in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's death. Charlie, you have spoken to Emily Altman. What did you make of the way that Robert Durst handled those questions from John Lewin? Well, I, I it, it's a it's a peculiar thing because Bob is now admitting not only that he was in Los Angeles, but he was the person, perhaps the first person to find Susan's lifeless body. And so, but now he's attacking Emily for that. So I, I, I think it's a case, uh, you know, he's trying to exact revenge on her because it was actually her testimony that ultimately led the defense to admit that Bob was in Los Angeles and that he wrote the cadaver note. Right. 
And then at the end of the day, we probably got the best exchange of the dialogue between Lewin and Durst. It was at that point that Durst, for the first time, actually stated that he thought the killer was in the house with him and Susan's lifeless body. He implied it in his direct testimony, but he actually said it under Lewin's questioning. And Lewin said, well, how is it possible that the body was cold if the killer was still in the house? And then Durst denied that he said that the body was cold. Then Lewin played the clip where he says he put his hand over Susan's mouth and it was cold. And Bob tried to say that it was her breath that was cold, the breath of her lifeless body. And Lewin made a quip, you mean the stiff was breathing? Charlie, what was the reaction of the jurors when Durst said that and when Lewin made the quip about the stiff? Again, it's pretty hard. You know, they're they're off on the side, but I, I think it was a little bit of a jaw dropper there. And and Lewin expressed it, right? How can her breath feel cold? She's a stiff. Yeah, Charlie, it was a stunning moment. And I, and I think we're going to get some more tomorrow because, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a uh, cliffhanger today. Well, we absolutely look forward to hearing what's next. Charlie, Brittany, thank you for being here once again. We look forward to covering all of the shocking revelations and tense moments that are surely to come after the next day of testimony. That's coming up on the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Notabartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Notabartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.